Hey, Rob. Hey, what's up, Mike? How you doing, man? How you doing today? So, episode 73 of The Rock Show, and this wow. is Hanoi Rocks. Hanoi Rocks, yeah. Uh, probably one of the most underrated bands of all time. One of my favorites, actually. Um, when I told you I wanted to cover them, I remember you kind of said you didn't know anything about them. Had you ever heard of them? Um, I heard of them, but I, I pretty much heard of them once the, uh, the the guy that got killed. Razzle. Razzle. After that, I never heard. And, and Razzle was a guy that came later on. which Right. He wasn't their original drummer, uh, but, you know, his death would, would kind of make the band famous in some ways. And Motley Crue and Vince Neil getting in trouble with all that. Uh, up until that point, not too many people had heard of the band, though they had just released their first American album. We're going to get into all that. Yeah, how funny is it that when you, the, the time you heard about this band was when that tri- tragic hit under the death? Yeah, I uh, I knew of them. I had actually seen them uh, that year, right, when that album had come out, and uh, it was at Danceteria. And it's the only time I was ever in Danceteria because they closed right not too long after that. I was like about 14, 15 years old. I got in with a fake ID. <laughs> And and got to see Hanoi Rocks. It was the only time I was ever in that place. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. But so they, have great, they have a great story. Um, we'll get into it. And uh, I, I just kind of think like people dismiss them in some ways, but I think they're like a very important band. Oh, I think so. So let me ask you a question. What can you tell me about the formation and early dates? Of well, this band. Okay. Um, they started in 1979 when singer Michael Monroe and his friend that he'd been friends with for about four years, a guy named Andy McCoy, he was a guitar player. Yeah. Now, Michael's real name is Matty Fagerholm, and Andy's real name is Andy Holko. Now, okay. for the sake of the fact that Finnish names are very fucking hard to say, I'm just going to say stage names for these people, okay? Yeah, they just changed, yeah. <laughs> because the, the, the real names are hard to say. Yeah. But they had been friends for about four years, and they had been in a couple of punk bands. Uh, Monroe was actually more than just a singer. He played bass, he played guitar, and he played saxophone as well. Um, and the saxophone would be a big part of Hanoi Rocks. Um, one time, Monroe auditioned for a Finnish punk band called Pele Miljuna Oi. OK, and Andy McCoy was actually the guitarist, but instead, uh, future Hanoi Rocks bass player Sammy Yaffa got the spot. OK, he actually was going to be the bass player, but then Sammy Yaffa got the part in the band. So these bands are kind of related, this this Peli Miljuna Oi and Hanoi Rocks. The former members all switch back and forth. Um, OK, McCoy was also the guitarist for that band also. Now, originally, the lineup for Hanoi was Mike Monroe on vocals. Uh, they had a guitarist named Stefan Piesnakti, oh, wow. something like that. These and, names are fucked up. <laughs> yeah. And they had uh, another guitarist who had a name of Nasty Suicide, one of the best stage names I've ever heard. Yes, he uh, is. A bass player named uh, Neto Soininen and a drummer named Pecky Sirola. All right. And Coy was not in that first lineup, but it was agreed upon. They had like a handshake agreement between him and Michael Monroe that he would join the band at some point. 
even though he was still in that other punk band. But the band, immediately with that original lineup, hit the Finnish club circuit right away. Uh, They had some original songs, and they did some covers. They used to cover the MC5. They used to cover Cheap Trick. And And the police also. And the police, right. Yeah, they had a cover of a couple police songs. Now, at an early gig, Michael Monroe and McCoy, uh, even though McCoy wasn't in the band yet, decided on former promoter Seppo Vesterenin, okay, as their manager. They decided that this guy would manage. I was just going to ask you because their manager was kind of an interesting guy. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was like a promoter. Yeah. And he was one of these guys that was able to kind of just lure in some of the bigger acts into Finland. Finland is one of these places that, you know, it's in Scandinavia. I think it yeah. kind of gets left out, you know, of a lot of the tours. People don't even realize there's places to go. You know, you have Helsinki, which is the biggest city, I think. Yeah. But, but you know, the rest of the country kind of gets ignored. Probably because it's so freaking cold. Nobody but that manager that. had like Iggy Pop and Frank Frank fucking um, yeah. Zappa go yeah, down. Yeah, to. he was able to get you know get them in. Um, Scandinavian fans at rock fans are insane. Okay, uh, right now for the last I would say twenty five years they're known for death metal. Okay, a lot of death metal bands come out of Scandinavia. Yeah, that's weird, man. They're, yeah, they're yeah, yeah, on that. that whole like viking thing going on with like death metal bands and all that some of it's interesting but but they're just known as very rabid fans uh one of my favorite scandinavian bands of all time is a band called the helicopters and maybe we'll do a show on them one day they were they were out of sweden so yeah same kind of same kind of place but um they got this guy seppo as their manager and by the second half of 1980 the more solid lineup of Monroe, McCoy, Nasty Suicide, Sam Yampa, and drummer Jip Casino was put together. They fired everybody else, and they brought these guys in. Wow. All right. I think that had to do with their management, and also McCoy was eventually going to join the band. Yeah. He brought Sammy Yampa from that punk band with him. So, you know, it was kind of like, it always seemed to me, and I read, Andy McCoy's book as well. Uh, it always seemed to me that they were just kind of waiting for that punk band to end. And then they were going to join Hanoi. It was kind of a weird thing. But once they got that lineup together, that was the, the, the real solid lineup that everybody started to, when they got popular, people were aware of. All right. Uh, so they got together after the punk band. Um, they, they dissolved the punk band, right? They just came right. over and joined Hanoi Rock. So here's a question. Um, can you can you tell me about Stockholm and the early recording in London and stuff like that? Yeah, well, what they did in the fall of 1980, okay, and they, they were this was interesting. Live. I thought this was interesting. It, it, it is. They actually relocated to Stockholm, Sweden, from Finland, which is not that far, but it's a big move. And they, but in reality, they went there. They had no place to stay. Oh, they shit. were homeless. They were homeless on the street, yeah. except for Andy McCoy, who knew a girl. And she had a little money and a place to stay, and 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 that's where he went. Yeah. But it wouldn't. They wouldn't have to struggle for too long because in November of that year, they managed to strike a deal with uh, the Scandinavian record label called Johanna Costanas. Okay. 
Uh, sounds like a person's name, but that's actually the name of the label, Johanna Costanas. What a name! Yeah, I thought yeah, it was the name yeah. of somebody. <laughs> no, it's it's not. It's an actual label. I don't don't ask me what it translates, but it means something. Um, and they put out a single called "I Want You" with the B side "Kill City Kills." Now, you know, they got this deal pretty quick, and and it's because they they had a lot of drive, a lot of tenacity. Uh, they, you know, Michael Monroe was begging on the streets in the winter. Okay. Wow. So yeah, I mean, these guys struggled. Uh, I think they believed that Stockholm was the place to be, you know, because it had a lot, a lot of connections with the UK and other places in Europe that they knew they could get to, and they would eventually get to UK. All right. Um, but that single was out. I want you and kill city kills. Now McCoy had kind of stolen the song I Want You from a Swedish band called Heartbreak. Wow. And he he translated the song into English and said he wrote it. He got away with it. All right. And then the B-side was a song called Kill City Kills, which was like an old song he wrote as a teenager about this, like, Finland neighborhood called Kill City. It was like a real tough neighborhood that he was living in. Um. In January of 81, the band would go on a 102-day tour, which still stands today as a record for a Finnish band. Okay? Dude, nobody, that's, like, that's a long tour, it. right? Yeah, that's like that's like a show every three days. That's a lot. Wow. Okay, if you think about it. And uh, it was on this tour that they developed their high-energy show that they would be known for. Now, the second single called Tragedy with the B-side Cafe Avenue both were written by Andy McCoy uh, when he was about 16 years old. That wow. was released in February of 81. So in a matter of two months, they had two singles out. All right. And they were playing a lot of shows. They were on a 102-day tour. Since January, okay, they also had been recording a debut album. And it was called Bangkok Shocks, Saigon Shakes, Hanoi Rocks. All right. And Andy McCoy and Michael Monroe would produce the album under the name The Muddy Twins, okay? And that's kind of a take on the Glimmer Twins, which is Jagger and Richards, okay? A lot of times when you look at Rolling Stones records, it'll say, produced by the Glimmer Twins. That's (laughs) that's, that's Richards and Jagger, okay? And that would come out also in February of 81. So they had two singles, and in two months and an album out. Now, the biggest hit on this album was Tragedy, which is one of their best songs ever. Okay. And the album would actually make it to number five on the Finnish charts. Um, on it, they covered an old song from 1961 by Bobby V called Walking With My Angel. And another one of their, their classic songs was on that. It's called Don't Never Leave Me. And that was recorded for this album, but it would reappear as don't you ever leave me on their fifth album two steps from the move which would be their last album with razzle and that whole story yeah um personally i prefer the first version okay okay uh nothing wrong with the second version i just think it's a little punkier a little nastier kind of like he there's one line where he's like talking about her beautiful lips and then he says and I love the beautiful lips between your legs like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it makes a second version, but it's, it's a good song. Um, now, after touring Finland and Sweden extensively through most of 81, 
the band decided in September to relocate once again. This time they were going to go to London. Okay. Yeah. So what's interesting too about Hanoi Rocks is they had the sense to know that they had to sing in English. English yeah. was not the first language. Uh, but most people in Europe speak English to some degree. So it wasn't hard to do it. But when you listen to Hanoi Records, their English is pretty good. <laughs> it's not yeah. really that bad. Um, now, when they relocated to London by September 19th, they were playing their first London gig at the Marquee Club. Yep. Yep. So between November of 81 and June of 82, they had this busy touring schedule, but would go back and forth a few times between London and Finland to do some shows and some recording. They would release some singles also, some non-album stuff called, uh, what was it called, Desperados uh, with Devil Woman on the back. Yeah, Devil Woman. Yeah, there was a single called uh, Dead by Christmas and Nothing New was the B-side. That came out in December of uh, of 81. So these guys were pretty much releasing a lot of singles. There were a lot of um, singles with, B- with pretty good B-sides. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They would do that. Uh you know, the albums and the, and the singles would come out every few months. They really, like the first few years, they, they really recorded a lot. And what's great is they didn't oversaturate, I don't think. Even though some bands do that, uh, they put out too much. Remember when we talked about Cheap Trick? Yeah, that, I was just going to say that Cheap Trick saturated, like they put out too much shit. I, I feel that that worked against them. But with Hanoi... I, I don't know. It just I think it worked for them because the live shows they do are just touring like crazy. Um, by January of '82, they would start making some music videos because that was MTV was starting to get big. You had a you know there was an MTV. Uh, they would use promo videos for places that they couldn't get to. Okay, that's how videos really got to be. You know, it was really promos for places that you couldn't tour. Or you weren't going to get there in time, so that that's how videos kind of always were used before MTV. Yeah, but, so like that, people can see how the band look, how they sound, and you know, you can, from there you can judge. Oh, you know what? These guys look kind of cool. I'll buy the album yeah. or not. Like it, like in the early seventies, the Rolling Stones made some promo videos off the Goat's Head Soup album. Yeah, and there's an episode of uh, Don Kirshner's rock concert, which was a show that was once a week, which would always be a live band. But the Rolling Stones couldn't be on the show, so they sent a video. And it's, it's them doing Angie and 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 uh, Silver Train and stuff off that album. And uh, it's great because these videos became classics later on. They, they were playing on MTV and everything. Um, MTV they, used to be great, man. In the first couple of years, they were, man. I was, I'd say up until about 85. Yeah, it was fantastic. So. Fantastic. So, Mike, what can you tell me about Oriental Beat and uh, Razzo joining the band in 92? Well, how, how did this when change they, when the they band? Were making, when they were making their videos in January of 82, they, they did it in Helsinki at an, a place called the Lepako. And that was like a, like a, a com- somewhat famous uh, venue. Um, they would shoot videos for Tragedy, the song Oriental Beat, and the song Motivate Me. All right, both of those, those last two we're going to be on the Oriental Beat album. Um, that would also come out that same month. So January of 82, they got a new album out called Oriental Beat. This album was critically acclaimed, all right? And it actually got the attention 
of uh, Kerrang! Magazine rock critic Dave Dixon. Wow. Now, in my, I used to read Kerrang! a lot when I was like 13, 14 years old around that time. And there would always be one article from him, not every month, I would say, but, but often, okay? There would be an article from him with like the latest Hanoi news, okay? And that was how I kind of heard of them, but I still hadn't heard their music. I'm like, I'm reading about this band, but I can't find their music. They're not, they're, their stuff is just not released in the United States. And I'm looking at pictures of them, and I'm like, well, you know, they look kind of cool. They look kind of like the New York Dolls or, or some of the glam bands that were starting to kind of come out, but not really. You know, like, like when, did, when did hair metal start? Around 84? Yeah, 84, much? yeah. 83, maybe. So this was like around that time. But, you know, this guy, Dave Dixon, would be writing about them. And he was like the only guy that I remember at that point writing about that band, but he would continue to write about them even through the eighties after Razzle died. And then the guns and roses connection to them and all that. But, but he like loved them. You know that? What's that? He loved them. Like he was a real big fan of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people fell in love with them. They were a great live act. Uh, Tragedy was a single that actually was starting to do very well in Japan at that point. And in May, they released a new single called Love's an Injection. And the B-side was a song called Taxi Driver. Both tracks were off of Oriental Beat. Uh, they were touring all over Sweden at that point. That was another spot where they were very popular. But by June of 82, they would be back in London permanently. And it was at that time that they met Hanoi Rock's super fan. And his name was Razzle. Okay. And, now, Razzle and they met, met where? They met in a John, Johnny Thunder show. Yeah, they, right. They met at a Johnny Thunder's concert uh, in London. And Razzle said he was a huge fan. And, you know, they had a, a, a show, you know, coming up, Hanoi Rocks. And he showed up backstage at their show. And he basically was like, listen, I should be your drummer. Okay. So the guy had balls. All right. And. McCoy and Monroe were impressed, but they were at the same time, they were seriously, you know, they were impressed, but they were also considering his offer because Jip Casino had a bad drug habit. Yeah, he was lumped up. Yeah, he was lumped up and he wasn't reliable. Uh, you know, he was always talking about killing himself and like you know, he had a lot of problems. And, and they were like, OK, we're going to get rid of you and we're going to take our fan Razzle. And at that point, they, you know, they had really kind of started to be a little tired. You know, a lot of touring, a lot of back and forth between Scandinavia and England. Um, you know, they were really given 110% into this band. They were starting to percolate and do well. But the live shows and even some, some elements in their recording, they felt, was starting to lack because they were getting tired and bored, in a sense. But Razzle reinvigorated them and they admitted that that he did um in august of 82 they would come out with their third album called self-destruction blues now this album technically uh is an album of singles and b-sides that were never on any album like that dead by christmas song and stuff like that uh jip casino does play drums on all the tracks 
but Razzle actually is on the album cover, and he and he gets the credit <laughs> also. Wow! They did, they, yeah, they took Jip right off it. So did um, the other guys didn't sue or try to come after them? I don't think so. Wow! I think the breakup was kind of, you know, they threw him out, and and that was it. He had a lot of problems anyway. He, he would, I think, he would have a band later on. I forget the name. But he would really have nothing to do with them after that point. Um, the Loves and Injection single would go to number one in Finland. And the album would make it to number 28. Now, they also got their first Japanese record deal at that point, And it was kind of based off the success of the Tragedy single, which had done really well. And they were on a label in Japan called the Nippon Phonograph Phonogram Company. Um they also at that point would get offered to do a tour of Asia. And in January of 83, uh, they would begin that tour and Razzle was a big hit on that tour. The fans loved them. Uh, they would start that tour in Bombay, India, and it would continue on to Hong Kong and then on to Tokyo. And it was in Tokyo that they were received like the Beatles. It was a huge thing. It was kind of like what we talked about with cheap trick last week. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they didn't even realize how big they were. They were received by thousands of screaming female fans. Uh, their, their, their hotel rooms would get broken into wherever they were staying. They, <laughs> uh, it was chaos. Um, after Tokyo, they would they would play uh, Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah. They would do shows there. And that's kind of a typical Asian tour, at least at that point in those days. Uh, Vietnam, if you were an American act, you weren't going there. All right. Because I think in, still by the early 80s, we weren't having any contact with that country after the war. But uh, a normal Asian tour, you would kind of end up in Japan. That's usually how you did it. Um, by April, they would return to London to record their fourth album called Back to Mystery City. Um, they also did a short tour of Israel. Yeah, I saw that. And it, it, it turned out to be a disaster. They were not well received. Um they didn't like Michael Monroe. They, they spit on him. They thought that he was a woman. <laughs> they, they thought he was actually uh, an immodestly dressed woman. All right. And he, he couldn't leave his hotel room. They would throw rocks at him. They would spit at him. Okay. And, you know, it just was a disaster. Now, nasty suicide broke his ankle. Broke, yeah. He broke his ankle on that tour. So it was a disaster. But they had a new single out called Malibu Beach Nightmare, and the B-side was called Rebel on the Run, and that was released in the late spring of that year. Yep. Um, in May of 83, Back to Mystery City came out, okay, around the same time as the single. And this was a big album for them. It was produced by ex Mata Hoople guys, Dale Griffin and Overend Watts. Wow. Yeah, yeah. They've since passed away over the last couple of years. Those guys are gone. But... Uh, Mata Hoople was a band that we need to do a show on, number one. But uh, Mata Hoople was the, the singer was Ian Hunter. And uh, he would be involved. We're going to talk about it a little bit in the next album. But with this album, it was the guys Dale Griffin and Over and Watts. Dale Griffin was the drummer of Mata Hoople. Yeah, because you and, saw them live, right? You thought they yeah, were pretty I saw good. Them last year. Yeah. yeah, on the reunion tour, which was amazing. Um, Michael Monroe is on record as like a humongous Mata Hoople fan. So I think it was probably his idea to get these guys involved. Uh, it, this album also had Morgan Fisher 
on keyboards, and he was the keyboard player for the last album Monta Hoople did called The Hoople, okay? One of the last albums they did, the last album with, with uh, Ian Hunter. Um, they brought him in on keyboards. So right away, having keyboards was going to be a little different with this album. Uh, Andy McCoy would continue with his strong songwriting. He wrote most of the songs for Hanoi Rocks. Uh, you had tracks called Malibu Beach Nightmare, Mental Beat, Until I Get You, Ice Cream Summer, and Back to Mystery City, the title track. They're, these are like classic Hanoi Rock songs. Um, the album will get to number 87 in the UK and then number six in Finland. So they were starting to get, you know, sell a little bit in England. Um, they continued touring the UK and Finland until the summer when CBS Records gave them a record deal for the American market. Wow. And it was worth 150,000 pounds, which was a lot of money, but not that much. Okay. It wasn't like they wowed them, but anything to get them into the American market. That's what, that's what they wanted. You know what? That was good money back then. And it was good money. Yeah, it was good money. It wasn't, it wasn't like a, you know, a million dollar deal, but it was good money. They had to split it, obviously, you know, um, they would in August. There was a, a label called Lick Records, and they would release their first three albums in England for the first time. Wow! Yeah, and I can remember just vaguely kind of seeing some of these Lick Record uh, releases in the states, uh, but they were really expensive. These albums were like you couldn't find them, and if you did, they wanted like you know forty, fifty bucks for them which was a lot of money back then for an album. Why? Because they were imports? They, they, just... they were imports. They were imports. They were, you know, and they were sought after. Like, people heard of this band, so there would only be, like, a few released, and they would make it. I remember, like, uh, Bleaker Bobs used to always have Hanoi Rocks, like, either in the window or, like, behind the counter. They'd have, like, a couple albums. And you'd look, and I'd be like, I, I remember one time I asked him, I asked Bleaker Bob specifically, I said, can you take that down? I want to look at them. And he's like, all right. I must have been about 15 or something like that. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at them, right? And I'm like, I remember I had some money and I was trying to like get two for cheaper, but he wouldn't do it. Not <laughs> you know, Brie I mean, Kebab. I, yeah, I mean, if I, you know, I'll give you like, instead of it being like 80, I'll give you like 65 or something for two. He wouldn't do it. I'm like, all right, man, forget it. And I remember it was like, I couldn't buy them. Eventually, I had a friend that had all the albums and he taped them for me so that was like my early you know uh exposure to them was on cassette you know recorded by a friend but um in august of uh in august of that year lick records would put out those three albums in england and they were still touring finland but they came back in october of 83 for some shows at the london marquee in december now these shows would be recorded and they would there would be a live video released as well called All Those Wasted Years. Great show. Uh you can see it on YouTube. Okay. Uh I had the video for many years, the VHS copy. Uh and during that time in December, Bob Ezrin, the famous producer who we've talked about a bunch of times. Yeah, great uh, producer. Alice Cooper, uh, Lou Reed, uh Kiss right? The Destroyer album uh, and tons of other things. 
uh, he he was going to be brought in by CBS to produce them. And he came to check out those shows. And it was then, you know, they 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 all it all worked out. You know, they agreed on him and he was going to be producing the next album for CBS. Now, in early 84, the band and Bob Ezrin recorded the album Two Steps from the Move at studios in Toronto and New York City. Ezrin, uh, knowing about their Matahukwu connection from the from the last album, actually brought in Ian Hunter, okay, to help with the songwriting. Now, Ian brought Jack Bruce, who was the singer from Cream. Yeah, that's okay. that's huge. Yeah, it was it was a huge it was a huge uh, help, you know. Yeah, and and he brought uh, a poet named Pete Brown, who Jack Bruce had worked with many times. So, you Mike, know? you tell me these guys all got another guy to another guy to another yeah. guy to yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was like you, you know, bring this guy in, bring this guy. You know, Bob Ezrin had a lot of connections, and these guys were bringing in people as well. But the funny thing is, in the end. Pete Brown being known as a great lyricist, they only used one of his lyrics for the song Million Miles Away. It's the lyric, smoked a lot of sky, drank a lot of rain. At a whole whole out, that was the only lyric they used. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny, you know. But uh, the band was satisfied with the album by the end of April, but Ezrin felt that it didn't have a hit song on it. All right. If he felt they needed one more track, that would kind of sell the album. And they recorded the Credence Clearwater revival song Up Around the Bend. And that was a favorite of Michael Monroe's and Nasty Suicide. Both of them love that song. That was uh, a great song. Yeah, it is. And their version of it is great. Okay. Now, between May and July, the band would go back to Asia and tour Bombay and Japan. And again, they were received with, we received with chaotic and rabid fans in Japan. But um, they also did a short tour of the UK and Scotland. Now, British magazines were hyping them a lot at that point. Everybody was was certain that their new upcoming album would be a big hit. Uh, in June of 84, the single and the video for Up Around the Bend would be released. And it would climb to number 61 in the UK singles charts and get some airplay in the USA. That's I remember huge. That's yeah, huge. I remember. I remember the video of them. It was kind of like a, a montage of them, like live shows, getting in and out of planes, getting in and out of limos, and stuff like that in the video, and showing them live. It wasn't like a, a like a, a concept video or anything. It was like a lot of live shit. And I remember that getting some airplay on MTV, and I remember hearing it a little bit on the radio. You know, um, not a big hit, but just you know, check out this new band. Back when the radio mattered a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, in July, that album, Two Steps from the Move, would be released. It was originally going to be called Silver Missiles and Nightingales. And I, I think they, they made a good choice changing the name, right? Yeah, they did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Nightingales doesn't sit well with so, them, but okay. Let me ask uh-huh. at this point, they're starting to get some success. They're moving into the U.S. They're ready to start taking off. They got albums, and a lot of the songs were in English. And then, yeah, well, the songs were always in English, but yeah. now they got their first American release, which is huge. Now, yes, but unfortunately, nobody wanted to release their other albums, you know, the earlier albums as well. Okay. It would be a long time before that would happen. But uh, 
in November, they released the single Don't You Ever Leave Me and Oil and Gasoline, okay? Uh, during that time, they were on tour with Johnny Thunders. They became very good friends with Johnny Thunders. Wow. Yeah, uh, which when you read Andy McCoy's book, practically almost kills him because of all the heroin involved. But <laughs> yeah. anyway. Uh, wasn't, but that, wasn't that what Joey Pinto taught us? Yes, he said the same thing. It's he true. would have wind up in a hotel room then. Yeah, yeah. He said if he went on tour with Thunders, he that's true. He did say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when they released the single "Don't You Ever Leave Me," uh, there was a promo video for that as well, and the sales numbers for the LP were coming in, and they had sold two hundred thousand copies, sixty thousand in the USA at that point. And 44,000 of that 60,000 was in the first two weeks. You know what? That's huge. That is huge. There was a lot of hype. In New York City, I remember seeing at Tower Records the album cover in a big, you know how they used to have the big signs inside that were lit up? Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, huge. And, you know, they kind of looked like, uh, you know, if you didn't really look close they look like every other hair metal band yeah okay, of course but but they weren't that's the thing with them they went they didn't sound like motley Crue. they didn't sound like uh, you know poison would sound a year or two later they they had a a very unique sound they were you know kind of like the new york dolls wow okay more like them than anything to do with the 80s hair metal it's just they kind of looked that way but after a Swedish tour in late in 84, they would tour America. And Michael Monroe would break his ankle on stage at a show in Syracuse, New York. And it resulted in some, you know, canceled shows. That was kind of a setback uh, because shows were starting to sell out pretty quickly and they had to cancel them. Uh, yeah, but they, they canceled because one of the guys got hurt, right? Well, Michael Monroe yeah. got hurt. Yeah, Mike, the singer, he 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 was jumping off, I think the the drum riser or something. You know, he was jumping around on stage and he and he slipped and snapped his ankle. What is it with this band and broken ankles? Don't they pay the people? <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. It's very easy to break your ankle on stage. But that's the you know, second you time those there. <laughs> in those, well, if you're jumping around, but also the, in those days, not everything. There was no wireless for these bands. Yeah. You had wires all over the stage. People would still, you know, would would, would fall down. They would run around. I, I've been to shows where people tripped over wires and fell on stage. I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and everybody laughs, but you hope they don't get hurt, you know. But now, this would be kind of a, a bad omen, though, because it would be the beginning of the end, really. Yeah. Because December 8th of that year, while they were on that American tour, um, the Hanoi members, except Michael Monroe, because he was still nursing that broken ankle, were partying with Motley Crue at Vince Neil's house in California. And uh, the other Motley Crue members were there as well as Vince. And at one point during the party, Neil realizes they're out of beer. So he grabs up Razzle and he gets in his Pantera, okay, which was an Italian sports car. And they ended up going to a nearby liquor store to buy some booze and some beer. And on the way back, they get into an accident. 
uh, and Neil, who was highly intoxicated, he survived, but Razzle was killed instantly. Damn. And that would be a death knell to the band. Okay. Um, the occupants of the other car were injured seriously. They had brain damage. Damn. Okay. But Andy McCoy and Motley Crue drummer Tommy Lee um, were, you know, wondering what happened to them. So they started to look for them. And they saw, they came upon the crash site just as Vince Neil was being handcuffed and put in the police car. Wow. And they were told at that point that Razzle was, was dead instantly. And Andy McCoy called their manager, Seppo, and he informed the rest of the band as to what happened. Now, this was a huge story. You probably remember it. Yeah. Right? Okay. Now, it, every, they were following this. You know, Vince did a couple of weeks in jail. Okay. Yeah, and uh, the movie Dirt. Right. Nobody, none of you guys came and visited me. I was in there for 30 days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. And he got off easy. Okay. He he really did. And, the you know, it was like three weeks. Now, MTV covered it all. And even the even the the sentencing and everything, and all he got was the the few weeks in jail and community service, and they said that when he was doing the community service, you know, like there was groupies all over the place. He was probably getting blowjobs. <laughs> okay, so you know, it, it it's really kind of a when you see the movie The Dirt, you, you know, they changed a couple of things yeah. around. They had him in a court. They had him in a Corvette. They didn't have him in a Pantera. Yeah. But, uh, you know, little things like that. But it, it, it really, you know, Razzle was the, was the heart of the band. He was, he was the, the new guy. He brought a lot of energy to that band. They were just starting to break into the American market. And then Vince Neil being, like, so freaking wasted, shouldn't have been driving, kills him, you know. And that incident actually changed the country. In, in this country as to how we perceive drunk driving, because there were a lot of people that were following it with MTV, even people that weren't fans. And they were like, wait, this I remember right. the first thing that that thing happened. It was on MTV. Yeah. Yeah. That was MTV yeah. news. Yeah. Remember seeing Vince Neil in handcuffs? Yeah. In court? Yeah. You know, I, I still remember that. Um, after this happened, the band would return to London and uh, they would do, two dates that they didn't want to cancel. They had to cancel the rest of the tour, obviously. But um, they would do two dates, January 3rd and 4th, and they were in Helsinki. And these dates, these shows were broadcast all over Europe on a show called Europe A Go-Go that reached 200 million people. Uh, so, it was, you know, it was huge. And uh, both shows ended up being memorials to Razzle. They needed a drummer, and uh, luckily they got Terry Chimes, who used to play with The Clash. He yeah. filled in. Now, after those two shows, Yaffa and McCoy had a falling out. Uh, Yaffa, the bass player. And Yaffa left and was replaced by bass player Rene Berg. Uh, Chimes would stay on, but Monroe was Michael Monroe was making noises. He wanted to leave the band. That was it. And he wanted to quit, but the record label kind of convinced him to stay on and do a short tour of Poland. Because in Poland, the single for Don't You Ever Leave Me was doing wow. well. 
So I guess they told him, look, you know, don't leave now. You got a chance to make some money. And I guess he figured, all right, I'll do it. Um, he agreed, but he asked them, please don't release any of this live music we're doing into a live album. And they said that they wouldn't. But secretly, the last few shows of the tour were bootlegged. Wow. And a semi-official release called Rock and Roll Divorce came out. And I've, I've heard this album, okay? And it's like awful. All right, those shows were awful. And it's kind of like, you know, like listening to a band like fall apart. Yeah, so why did they put them out if they were off? I don't understand it. It, 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 I don't think uh, CBS put it out. It was like a sort of a bootleg, but it wasn't like a total bootleg. Somebody major put it out. I don't, I'm not wow. sure who it was to be honest, but I did hear it once and it's like awful. But don't you ever leave me would go to number six in Poland. But on June 17th, 1985, Michael Monroe would leave the band and that would be the end pretty much of them, uh, at least in the original incarnation. Um, you know, Michael Monroe kind of fell off the map. Andy McCoy kind of fell off the map for a few years. Uh, he would go, Monroe would go on and release, he would relocate to New York City. And I used to see him around. Okay. He would be at, uh, he would be at CB's. Okay. Uh, you, sometimes you'd see him on the street. Okay. And he had this like, you know, shocking spiked out blonde hair. <laughs> okay. And he would be dressed in these like long scarves and, you know, glam kind of clothes. Very cool guy. I, I just, I, I never really had a conversation with just a, Hey, how you doing? Wow. Kind of thing. But nice guy. Uh, he was good friends with Stiv Baders. Okay. From the dead boys and Lords of the new church. Uh, he was good friends with Johnny thunders, Didi Ramon. Uh, they all collaborated on things. They were supposed to be, a super group uh, by the late 80s with Thunders, Baders, Didi, and Monroe. And I think it was going to be called the Whores of Babylon or something. I thought like it was going to call the Don't Do Too Much Heroin Tour. It's called Dead on Dead Heroin, heroin. Tour, if that would happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, what you also started to see was a band on the rise called Guns N' Roses. Yes. And Guns N' Roses talked about Hanoi Rocks often. Uh, and in fact, they kind of did for Hanoi what Metallica did for the Misfits. All right. Metallica always wore Misfits T-shirts. Guns N' Roses would talk about Hanoi and wear their shirts and say how much of an influence they were. And in fact, if you look at early footage of Guns N' Roses, like before they had Appetite out, Look at look at Axel. His hair is blonde and spiked yeah. out. He looked just like Monroe. Izzy Stradlin uh, always looked like he was in Hanoi Rocks. He could have been Sammy Yaffa, the way he looked with the floppy hat and the scarves and all that stuff. You know, he looked exactly like him. Um, Monroe would have a successful solo career. He would he would come out with um, an album called Not Faking It that did pretty well. I saw him on that tour. I think it was. Fall of '88 wow. at, Sun, at at Sundance, which was a place out in oh, Bayshore yeah. on Long Island. I don't know if you ever were at that place. It was a little dive bar. It was a good club. They had a, a lot of like punk and metal bands played there. I saw the Ramones there a bunch of times. Uh, 
they uh, they used to have a show, a metal show uh, on WBAB out there. And there was a DJ called Fingers. And he would do his metal show from Sundance all the time. It was a cool club. And uh, I saw Michael Monroe there. And he was great. And he did a couple of Hanoi songs. And he did, you know, everything off his solo stuff. Um, and I, you know, I was, I had, like I said, also, I had seen Hanoi right at the very end there at Danceteria. And then, to be honest with you, I would not see Michael Monroe again for about 16, wow. 17 years. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think. Maybe it was even, wait, was it longer? 88? No, it was longer than that. It was like 25 wow. years. Between, between 88 and 2014 or 15, he had started to come around again with a new band. Uh, you know, in that time, there was always talk about Hanoi getting back together. And they would get back together, sort of, in 2001, between 2001 and 2007. He would, Monroe would reform the band. Originally, it was just him as the original member, which I didn't like that at all. Okay. I, I, when I heard about that, I was like, nah, I got no interest in that. Okay. Uh, then Andy McCoy joined up and kind of got a little interested but i never got to see that that lineup uh they had some different people playing with them uh they had a lot like a heavy you know rotation in and out of different lineups uh they would put out three albums i didn't like them they were different than than what they had been doing before it was a different kind of sound it just didn't connect and he you know it it the fact they even put three albums out is yeah. And his band was very that. mediocre but, uh, compared to anything that they had. They had before, yeah. Uh, you know, you want to see Sammy Yaffa and and uh, and and McCoy on the same stage, nasty suicide. Otherwise, it's not Hanoi. You know, it'd be like Jagger taking the stone. I wonder how come that didn't work because it seemed like they were they kept the sound the same and everything. It wasn't though. I mean, the music, the stuff they released terrible. on those albums, they didn't have. They, it wasn't. I wouldn't say terrible. It was just different, and they were. They just didn't sound like Hanoi, you know. And yeah, I mean, terrible in the sense of like you wanted to hear that crunchy guitar they were known for. It just didn't have that. It didn't have that energy. Um, but you know, that's that's you know, he would have a a, a bunch of solo albums that came out. Over the last ten years, eleven years, yeah. they, they were pretty damn good. Michael Monroe, yeah, yeah. I saw him at the Gramercy uh, with Sandy a couple of years ago, and he kicked ass. He had that that song called "Ballad of Ballad of the Lower East Side." No, you ever hear that song? Oh, you got to check it out. Go YouTube it later. It's called Ballad, Ballad of, the of the Lower East Side. He's just, yeah, he's just talking about how New York's changed and. You know, where he when he lived there, it was like junkies, pimps, and whores, and and now it's all squeaky. Clean. What would he think of it today? <laughs> that's what that's that's what he's no, saying. What you know, would he think about it today when the yeah. rents are fucked and people? It might go back. Yeah. Well, it might. I mean, I, I in a way that would be bad, and in a way it would be good. I guess kind of start over a little bit. Maybe we'll get a little, you know, street. 
back to the Lower East Side instead of these people that are here <laughs> that we all can't stand, right? It's crazy, man. <laughs> this is crazy. It is. It is crazy. We're, we're going through some crazy times right now. But I uh, that's tell all you, you Mike, that was Rocky. an interesting um, history that you gave me. You know, you came, you came to the... You came to the plate with a home run with this one, man. A lot of information, a lot of stuff that I didn't yeah. know. Because when we, when we first, when you told me, I was like, I have no idea who the fuck these guys are. Yeah, they, they even today, they kind of slipped through the cracks in the history of, 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 of rock and roll. But people in the know, like I, like I said, I saw Michael Monroe a couple years ago at the Gramercy. And that show was sold out. It was packed. All right, and he and he blew the so stage. So they got a cult following. Them. They got a very underground okay. cult following. They have a strong, yes, and you know it's the kind of cult following. You know, guys like, uh, uh, you know, Degeneration, like Jesse Mallon, were like big fans. You would see them at the shows. Steve Conti, who plays with Michael Monroe now, you know, he's he's uh, well, he was on stage, but he was always a fan. Uh, the New York Dolls cult following people like Thunder wow. cult following, uh, all all love all love Hanoi, uh, yeah. And I think I saw Jimmy wow. Webb at that <laughs> show. Yeah, I think I did. I think I did. Right, it was a right. who's yeah. who's of hey. So it well, was a who's who of the Lower East Side. You know, old school, right? Old school crowd. You know, was there, and it was just packed. And uh, he's he's great live. If he comes around, we should go see him. You'd enjoy it. Wow, fucking fantastic, man. Yep. Um. So this is um. Yeah. Han, 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 uh, Hannah rocks and um. Damn, Mike. Holy shit. And you know what's funny? And the thing is, once <laughs> I started now, seeing right? like some of the music, and then I started looking up some of the video, I'm like, shit. This was an MTV. I remember this crap. It was like, holy shit. Yeah, but you know, it was on MTV. But no, it but it wasn't huge. But they had they you had playtime. They did. They were wedged in between, yeah. you know, Motley <laughs> Crue and Poison. But they but they were different. But they but they were different. You know what commercial I love right now? The commercial with the guy say we move into our new home, but we got a rat problem. It's the rat and this rat playing in in the in the roof. I saw <laughs> that. Yeah, I saw that. And I looked I saw that and I went like, Stephen Piercy, the lead singer, yeah. looks old as shit in that commercial. I was like, damn, that guy used to yeah. like the girl. But how funny is that commercial? Oh, yeah, it is. It is funny. Wow. So, Mike, man, a lot of funny. information. Uh, you know what? They had a short history, but they did a few things. They sold plenty of albums, and you know what? That once they were, they started making a wave, and fucking tragedy hit them. Yeah. And you know, from all different sides, you know, and and, and losing Razzle was, was yeah, that was the, the death knell for them. It was like it was like Zeppelin losing yeah, Bond. that's the nail in the coffin. Exactly. So yeah, we, we got, got a lot shows of shows coming, coming up. We got uh, I just want to mention Nevada, Nirvana, right? The make the making of yeah, never mind. Uh, never mind. We're doing a show on we're doing a show on Black Flag. Uh, we're doing a show on the the, the amazing and uh, yeah, fantastic Peter Tosh. Peter Tosh. Be fucking fantastic. That's what it'll be. That's gonna be that's gonna be a good show. Uh, and uh, 
we're yes. gonna go back to doing hey, videos. Do you soon. see that long um on the the comment that that one lady did for the T Rex show? Yeah, no, on um on Twitter. I wonder if she's on Twitter, but on YouTube she did a long thing, and she and I told her, hey, thank. Yes, look no, at I the didn't comments see it. On, on YouTube for the uh, T Rex show, and and I thought, thank you for she also she gave us like a history lesson too, like you did. Wow, was she correcting no, she me, was or was she? So she was, was more with the guy Steve um, took. She was all about Steve took. took. So she just yeah. talked about Steve Took and oh, okay. how so, he would. Yeah, so when you read it, she she wasn't nothing. She would say, "This is the little. I know you guys knew this." But this is a little something you guys didn't know about Steve Took. So that's what she pretty much said. She's like a Steve Took oh. fan. So, yeah. Cool. No, that no, he had a, he, you know, that Tyrannosaurus Rex band had a following. But um, what I got today was a tweet from a, I think it was a, either a T-Rex or just a Mark Boland yeah. fan club kind of thing. They said they, they said they loved the show. And they That's retweeted good. it all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And I said and thank the, you and stuff and everything. And yeah, man. I mean, it's uh, you know, we're so getting, we're, we're we're, doing well. So we're out the there. next couple of weeks, like the make, like you say, we got the maker on Nevada. Never mind. We got Black Flag, Queen of Torch. Then we got Little Richie, Little Richard. We got Little the Richard. Pretty Things. Captain Beerheart, pretty things, and the yeah. making of the doors, first album, and Bauhaus. Yep, yep. So we got, yeah. Unfortunately, the Bauhaus show in June is uh, got canceled, but it's going to be so, rescheduled. Yeah, guys, so we'll do we a got a lot of, of stuff coming up, a lot of good shows. Listen, um, give us your feedback. Send us a a message yep. on Twitter, on Instagram, um, and Mike, how can they reach you? Okay, you can find me on Facebook under the name Michael Baker. That's my real name, B-A-K-E-R. You can find me um, on Instagram, RockerMike212, RockerMike212. And Twitter, I'm out there on Twitter as RockerMike3. Hit him up, and uh, for the rest of me, you can find me on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and um, any social media platform that's out there. And if you want to download the show, we are on almost every single platform you can imagine. And um, guys, remember to listen to um, the yep. um, Dick Manitoba show. It's a great interview. And um, if you do listen to the show, uh, please give a review of his album, Born in the Bronx. He can use the, all the support and all the help that he can get. So remember to uh, listen to the Dick Manitoba. It's a fantastic show. Yep. Uh, Mike did a great interview. And and Dick Manitoba got open on a lot of things that I didn't think he would talk about. It. So you know, that was that was a fantastic hey, interview. I've gotten a lot of good feedback about that. And uh, also uh, check out his own podcast, yeah. Handsome Dicks, called "You Don't Know Dick." All right, and uh, that's on uh, a lot of the same. Yeah, he's on a bunch of platforms. He's also, on, you can I also get Andorra, the show right Spotify. off his website, oh, uh, Handsome yeah. Dick Manitoba. Right. And YouTube. Yeah, another thing. So I was talking, Charlie Kelly well, was talking about, like, the, he said some of our best show was, uh, the three best show he's still saying is the Al Diaz, the, um, the graffiti artist. And then, uh, oh, the, yeah. the, Joe, the, um, the Joey Pento, and then, uh, the Dick Manitoba. He said it's great. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. Charlie's a good guy down in New Yeah, Orleans. definitely. Yeah, shout, out to Johnny, to, uh, shout out to Charlie Kelly. And you know what? Boogie Libs. How about one of those? <laughs> so, uh, Mike, for Boogie. everybody. Let's not forget Boogie. Boogie, Boogie, Boogie did Boogie. Oh, Boogie yeah, I saw the cool thing. You should put that up on Twitter, see, for so people that haven't seen it can look at it. Yeah. He put it. He made. So he's a good graffiti guy, and he put some graffiti on the ground. Said that was fantastic. Mike, I was yeah, in front of it on a bench. Pretty cool. So, Mike, so yeah, so, from you and to everybody else, remember: right. don't get drunk, get lumped up. See you soon. Have a good one. Don't get drunk. Get lumped up.